hi everyone, welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast in Edelman, London, where we talk about how technology is impacting the way we communicate uh, relationships with brands and each other and ultimately society. Uh, my name is Simon Madry from the London Tech Team and I'm joined um, by some special guests today to talk all about creativity. Um, the first is David Bierce from... Um, David Bierce, I guess we would say. He's an award-winning creative who's worked with some of the biggest and best agencies, including Poke, McCann, World Group, Ogilvy One, and Draft FCB. Uh, he's the former editor-at-large at The Drum, author of A User Guide to the Creative Mind, and he's got a new book coming out soon called Iconic Advantage, which he co-authored. Um, he's also a broadcaster. He had a six-part TV series called The Day Before Tomorrow, so already I'm feeling incredibly inaccurate inadequate um i always feel inadequate that's fine <laughs> exactly but dave thanks for so much for, for coming in today um, and we've also got paul dixon he's uh, an associate creative director at edelman deportivo and he's worked with some of the uk's biggest tech brands including uh, microsoft Symantec, and western digital to to name just a few and um your work's been also been nominated for some can lines and saber awards so paul thanks for um taking the time of your day yeah one day there'll be a win there yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we have creative people in um, on an afternoon session talking about how technology and creativity play together in the sand pit and sometimes throw stones at each other and how that all works and I guess the um, maybe not the easiest place to start but the best place to start is what is what does creativity mean to, to you guys um, Paul well that's harder to answer than you might think. Um, That's why it's first. <laughs> I, I once saw it described as making something from nothing, which is has stuck with me because in the broadest sense, I guess that's true. It's like when you, if you anything you're creating that's new, you're putting something new out there into the world, that's creativity in its purest form. I guess com commercial creativity is about taking the very rational and making emotion with it, whatever that emotion that might be. Interesting. Dave, knowing somebody, you're somebody who is very much into dissecting creativity, which is... <laughs> well, actually, there's a, a theory that I'm working on at the moment that is in a, a, a book that will hopefully be out at the end of next year. And I've kind of got this theory of what the people that we describe as creative are. And there's two parts to it. The first, you have to kind of describe in the negative. Most people feel this incredible draw towards the center of a norm. So every group of people, whether it's society, whether it's a company, whether it's a church group, whether it's your family, there's a norm. And this is all the expected ways of behaving, the, the, the ways we would traditionally do things. And people who we describe as creative don't feel that same pull to the center of the norm. So they'll diverge from the norm a bit more. So that's one part of it. And the second part of it is that there are people who have got the they've got this energy that they want to create. You know, it's the creating part of it. I think there's there's people, I think it's better to call these people creators rather than creatives in many ways. Mm -hmm. So so they diverge and they produce stuff. So they're a bit weird and they do things, they're productive weirdos, I guess, would be my description of somebody that we would call creative. So that should be on the business cards now, productive weirdos. I might have to put that in my LinkedIn profile now. <laughs> You've anticipated like my next question quite well in that case, because creatives or creative people in the past have been you know, free thinkers. Um, but I think you've summed it up quite well. Is creativity then just reserved for those people you've described, or do we think that you know anyone can be creative? You know, you always get those people going, oh, I'm not creative, I'm, I'm going to sit out of this brainstorm. <laughs> I think everyone's creative we, yeah, we all start out creative yeah 100 percent. i think like um people say they can't draw 
everyone can draw. It's just what they're really saying is they think they can't draw well. I think creativity is a bit like that. So it's a skill that you can learn. Some people might be predisposed towards it, but it's not to say that it's locked to only free thinkers. Free thinking is a, is a discipline that you can explore, you can take inspiration from others, you can work on it as a technique, and everyone can be creative, definitely. Yeah, I mean, in the same way as athletes, some athletes have just got a body that's perfectly suited to be a sprinter, to be a hurdler, to be a, a, a football player, whatever. They've, they've got the body that gives them that advantage. But anyone can run. Well, most people. Um, and you, it's the same with brains, that we've all got the ability to be able to do the action of, of going through the creative process. But some of us are better wired for it than others. Now, that I think that that is actually minimal, the difference that that makes. I think the wiring is absolutely minimal. I think attitude is far more important. And I think that education doesn't understand what creativity is. So when you go to a school and you ask them about creativity, and I'm just about to do this as a study, actually, um, you ask them about creativity, what I've found is that they will generally say, well, we've got an art lab, we've got a music lab, we've got a drama lab. You know, we, we support creative, but that's creative doing. It's not creative thinking. You know, that's creative doing. That's the stuff that you need to put in the 10,000 hours to get good at. That's different from creative thinking. Anyone can do creative thinking. And that's the valuable stuff for business is being able to solve problems, being able to come up with ideas that don't come from that obvious center of normality, that, that come from that sort of peripheral area, which is where the interesting ideas come from, which is why it's really important to be able to diverge. So I, I think everyone has it in them, but we're actually not taught how to do this. We're not taught how to do it well, and we basically, we learn how to be uncreative over time. So people very often ask me, how do you make people more creative? And I say, I don't. I make them less uncreative. Because that's actually the bigger thing to deal with, is that people learn to be uncreative. So that leads to a really um, interesting point, because tech companies for a while were probably those uncreative kids, right? Um, which may have been a case of them having ugly black plastic grey pieces of hardware in cardboard boxes but suddenly they're you know the the darlings of the creative industry in many in many cases what do you think happened and what do you think were the key moments um, in the tech industry that you know they are what they are today and um, what well, I think it's a case of technology having changed um, if you look at where tech is now it's part and parcel of everybody's lives whereas maybe 80s 90s maybe changing in the 80s until that point it was the preserve of the geek whereas now we're kind of all geeks so in inevitably the the way that tech companies are communicating is much more uh, interwoven into popular culture because it's part and parcel of every, everyday life so i think if you I, i've just read a book called electric dreams i think it's called um it's about the uh, the birth of the home computer, and when you it talks about the advertising of the, of some of those uh, early like the BBC Micro and and the uh, Acorn, and their their marketing campaigns actually pretty sophisticated. But the people they were talking to was a, was a, a niche niche group. Whereas now you've got the equivalent of that kind of messaging, very lifestyle driven, but it's talking to everyone because everyone's obsessed with tech now. Yeah, I think th I, I used to do. 
um, advertising back in the early days of the web. Um, I'm an old man, and I was doing advertising back for for tech stuff back in like ninety two, ninety three, and the, the brief for all of these things it was the same brief, and it was that this technology it's amazing. You'll get things done faster, which means you can spend more time on you. You can go and play golf. You can spend time with your family. Has it happened? No, we never got our dream. Um, so technology hasn't lived up to the promise. But as you're saying that that. It was very rational stuff. So it was the land of the geeks, and they knew that numbers turned the geeks on. So it was all sort of very rational stuff that it used to be that they communicated with. But now it's benefit rather than rationality, which is better. As we know, that's a better way of uh, persuading people. So it seems as if communications-wise in the tech industry, we are more on to benefit. And it's interesting that the way that Apple have done their stuff is really more like fashion advertising because the benefit is that you look cool. And they've been very much more just since the sort of white headphone stuff. It's all been just fashion advertising, really, that Apple's done. So it's almost not enough to just focus on the tech and the cool stuff, the, the cool stuff that it does, because that only appealed to those niche group of uh, early adopters. Is, is, that what you're, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't think it's very good for, for anything. If you're selling a car, I, I don't think many people who buy a car these days is that are that interested in how many valves it's got or what the, the cubic centimetres of fuel that it can pump through at a, a minute or, or, or whatever it is. You know, it's we're selling a lot more things now on emotion and on the emotional benefit. And a lot of it comes down to, I mean, it's taken us a while to get there. We've known this since the 70s. The, the whole stuff, when you look at sort of Thaler's work and, and the sort of Kahneman's sort of thinking fast and slow and things... That we know that 80% of the decisions that we make are an autopilot and we're highly influenced by, um, we do things for emotional reasons and then very little of it is actually stuff that requires rational thought. So emotion is far more persuasive in getting people to take action than rational. In many ways, it's better if, if 80% of stuff is done in autopilot, it's better that you don't engage people's minds too much. That's kind of the thinking behind behavioral economics really, is that you can, you can grease the path uh, from there to there, using these little bits in people's brains, but it's maybe getting us away from technology and more onto psychology. Do you, do you feel it's still the case when you get to maybe B to B comms? So maybe, maybe this is a question for you, Paul. You get a brief for a piece of kit or um, you know something designed for a specific purpose or an audience. How do you tackle that brief? Well, when you look at the statistics, at least the ones I've seen, is that it. it doesn't change so the the b2b purchaser mindset may be thinking about business metrics and and profit and loss but but they make decisions in exactly the same way as a consumer does so emotion is is just as important and in fact because so much of the the communications they're exposed to are so boring if you can if you can grab them with the heart rather than the mind, which is what everyone else is saying to them, it's much more powerful. So in B2B, I would say it's just as important, if not more so. Is there something more that the people um, within the companies themselves, the communicators within the company, should be doing more of, or different questions they should be asking of those people who are developing the technology to help the creative process? Well, for me, I think when people are developing technology, very often the way it has been traditionally done is you've got the engineers develop the technology and then it's over to marketing to sell this stuff. Mm. Now, that's the wrong way around. 
advertising is the tax that people pay on having a bad product. That's what it is. If, if you have a crappy product, you then have to persuade people to buy it. If you put your marketing into the product, so that it's not this engineering first and then market that, you're actually going, what is it that people want? We understand what it is that makes people feel good about stuff. We understand what it is that makes people feel a reward out of using this product. That's putting the marketing into the product then you need to spend a heck of a lot less on marketing. I know it's not something you guys want to hear, but um, it then it's, it's a much better thing that businesses can do. It's actually a much better use of their money. It's a much better way of getting loyalty uh, from their customers. And this is some of the stuff that I look at in the in the book that I've got coming out in, in February with, that I wrote with my friends soon. And there are ways of, of doing this that will give you much better long-term success because um, I, I think that generally it's been there's been this separation between the geeks who make the stuff and then the people who have to sell it, and that is a bit of a problem. The interesting thing about that is um, less with hardware perhaps, but um, it's probably only a matter of time, is that because of data, companies can now see what people are really thinking and how they're using their services and products and then adapt the product and service to what's happening. So the way... Netflix are doing that with with programming. People can do that with with all kinds of uh, products where it's, it becomes a feedback loop using data. So you don't even have, need to rely on telling the engineers what to do because the the, the product itself is is doing that. Dave, I want to get back to a point you were talking about um, uh, dealing with a bad product and helping to market that. Is it uh, more challenging? More challenging might not be the right word to apply marketing to a bad product and having that creative challenge or is it having a really good product going wow this this actually really works this is really really cool people are going to love this and then going how am i going to make them love it even more like what's where's the bigger challenge oh they're they're different challenges but I, i i prefer the one where the product is great because then you've got the benefit built into the product and all you have to do is dramatize the benefit or communicate the benefit the problem is when the benefit isn't really built in and then the marketing is trying to find some kind of benefit, then when the consumers actually have the experience of buying it, there feels to be a little bit of a disconnect because the benefit doesn't automatically come through. Or the benefit that you end up having to put in there feels a little bit esoteric and or, or fluffy. So, so it's much more persuasive if you actually have a proper benefit in a product that's got the marketing built in. That's just beautiful. That That's the way it works. And then you're advertising all it should do is just make that shine bring that out communicate it as beautifully as possible to the right people at the right time yeah absolutely agree with that it's always it's always better to promote something that's great in the first place um partly because when you can believe in it yourself then uh it it becomes all the easier to 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 create something amazing with it i do love it when campaigns find a benefit in a flaw it almost cancels out the floor and, and becomes a it, it, it becomes a great thing in in and of itself, which is uh, which is really nice. But they're rare. That's what as Dave says, you get more tangential, really weird campaigns that have obviously come from uh, a place where they never really nailed what it was the product could solve or, or what it did well. The the um, good things come to those who wait. Guinness campaign came from a product floor. The original insight was that. Um, people wouldn't order Guinness because it took so long to serve. So that ad campaign, which ran for you know years and years, um, they got so much out of it. All came from the fact that there was a, there was a you know a, 
uh, considered a flaw in the original product. So in a moment, we're going to talk about the future of um, creativity and technology and how they meet. But um, as we do on Sideload, we're just going to take a quick pause and hear about what happened last time, which was all about SEO. There's a very good chance that your competitors have done something either better than you've done or as equally good as you've done. So if you're trying to find a way to seed content, trying to think of interesting avenues to go down in terms of thinking about new content and generally trying to think about new ways to link build, take a good in-depth look at what your competitors are doing and finding out where they're getting mentioned and where they're getting coverage from. And there's a good chance that that will spark ideas. Sometimes we basically don't creep on our competitors enough or other people in our industry that are doing creative, interesting, unique ways and things, especially when it comes to SEO. It's a very competitive space and there's always someone pushing and pushing the threshold of doing something new. So it's very important to keep chasing. And so welcome back to Sideload where we are discussing technology and creativity and that intersection or parallel or clash. Before the break, we were talking about working with some really great pieces of tech and there were some um, recent examples of brands using new and upcoming tech such as the, um, the, the Google Home is the biggest example with uh, Burger King, I believe it was. Do we think that sometimes brands can put the... Um, the technology capability before an insight and just work with something which is just new and cool and just maybe doesn't land in the way that it, it should because, you know, something like that received quite a bit of criticism. Yeah, I mean, there, there's two ways to do things with uh, innovation and marketing. One's to be the first and the other's to be the best. If you can do both, fantastic. So if you want to get noticed in, uh, in advertising awards or get picked up by um, newspapers, of people talking about stuff, things to go viral online, yep. then being first to do something is a great way of doing it. And if you want to be first to do it, there's kind of like a tip on how to do that. And uh, this is where you might have to bleep. Um, because the, the, the tip to do it is to fuck with shit. Um, it's not to, to use the rules that you are given. It's not to use a piece of technology for what it's been designed for. It's to abuse it. It's to throw away the rule book and see what happens when you do something different with it. Because when Facebook brings out a new piece of technology or the Google Home comes out, here's your API, here's how you use it, here's how you do it. Right? When you screw with that, that's when you get noticed because you're not doing it the same as everyone else. And one of the big things we find about creativity, uh, if you look at artists, a lot of the stuff we look at when you, you, look, you think of famous artists have been reactionary. Everything, everything else has been done a certain way at the time, and they've done something that's been different. They've reacted against that. So the pop art movement was reactionary against fine art painting. And when you look at the stuff that Dali was doing, it was reactionary against the sort of realist stuff that was there at the time. So if you want to get noticed and to be the first at something, then you can do that by taking the technology and abusing it, not using it for what it's meant. If you want to, the other way is to, to use it in the best possible way. At that point, you're not necessarily going to get the big PR spike, but what you can do is you can start to properly grow users and create a service. So it depends whether you're wanting to go for like ad tech uh, innovation approach or whether you're actually wanting to go for problem solving innovation approach. One's short term, one's long term. One of the things we talk a lot about is um, how marketing communication is evolving with technology, how uh, people 
who have uh, traditionally interacted with journalists will soon have to speak to a machine uh, and all those uh, fun challenges that are associated with that. Has the creativity process changed or evolved at all with technology? How so? Good, bad, discuss. In terms of the actual creative process, I mean, at the beginning of my career, the internet was not what it is now. So just, there's never been so much input. So it's, when you're in the creative process, you're just looking for input. You're looking for anything, any hook you can jump off of where you're looking for inspiration that kind of never ends so it's not just when you're in a, on a brief it's just a, a continual thing and now it's everywhere you never had so much input so if anything whereas maybe once the creative process was about searching for for the inspiration now it's a, a matter of how do you boil everything down into something your mind can actually deal with because you've got so much noise going on so it's you come. We're kind of spoilt. There's there's so much to pull in from that. Uh, now it's a matter of being a curator of everything you you're exposed to. The way I think about it is like when I go to a, a restaurant and I have a menu of a hundred choices. Like now, just give me right. one of about twelve or something. So, in some ways, do you, you're saying it's almost stimulation overload or inform, sorry, information overload? Where- yeah, I mean you're also surrounded by lots of creativity all the time. So you find everybody is, you get these trends in creative campaigns that you that suddenly will spike in a few months and you'll see lots of campaigns that do a certain thing all in the same way. And maybe that's not changed much through time. There's always been trends, but things of the pace is incredibly quick and everybody in almost in the entire world is looking at the same kind of campaigns. So you get you get this rush kind of what David just touched on about originality becomes really like a a lifeblood. So just make it original. What's the the first, what's the first each time. And maybe there's not the depth. So you don't, I don't know if it it feels true that you don't see such long running campaigns because they, it tends to be more of a jumped on a topic topic and then that's gone now. So what's the next big thing? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in the market. That's, that's exactly what I see as well. Um, I think technology has affected the way that our brains work as well. And I think that the people, the way that we use technology isn't very healthy for creativity. So one of the things that when people are looking for information, naturally what they do is they Google it. And Google have done this wonderful thing where they've used their algorithm to find out what's the most relevant thing for certain search words. And it means that if anyone's trying to solve a problem or working in a certain kind of brief or in a certain industry, they Google it. And everyone gets the same information. And and it's input, process, output. And there's only so much processing that this meat computer can do. And the output is more dependent on the input, really. Because this thing doesn't do magic. It's just a way of connecting things together. So if people have got the same input going into their heads, everyone's having the same kinds of ideas. And Google is kind of like forcing us down that path to have the same the same stimulus going into our heads. And what makes it worse is as we start typing, of course, it starts telling you the question you should be asking. <laughs> as you're typing, you get the auto-suggestions. And then it's, did you mean? Um, and then to compound that further, we get what we call the Google effect. And the Google effect means that if we think that something's stored on a piece of technology, it's stored on an internet, we don't remember it. Now, if we don't remember it, it means that those pieces are not there for us to connect in our brains. And it's really important that we've got this hopper of stimulus, this hopper of ideas in our heads that we can use to feed the ideas. And if the Google effect means we're not remembering stuff, it means our brains are getting flabbier and flabbier because we're 
outsourcing, first of all, we outsourced our memories. So with phone numbers, even the way that we're recording situations, we go to concerts, we see stuff, it's, it's, we're recording it and we're not fully living the moment. And then we, we'd never watch that video again. <laughs> um, so, so we've outsourced our, our memories and then we're outsourcing our processing power. When was the last time you did mental arithmetic with four numbers, you know? I don't even want to think about long division. Yeah. <laughs> and then what we're just about to do is we're about to outsource our decision making so that we're going to get AI that will be able to look at your past behavior, turn that into an algorithm that it can apply to future decision making and make decisions on your behalf. So users are about to start ticking little boxes to say, yes, make decisions on my behalf. This thing is already 60% fat. If we're not using it, <laughs> how, much, how much fattier is it going to be? We're going to end up with these really lazy brains that we're, we're not exercising, we're not filling with decent stuff. Um, we're, if we don't, if we get worse at decision making because we're outsourcing that, then we've really got very little left in our brains that we're using that is of value in the creative process. So I'm kind of concerned about the, the long-term effect that technology can have on human brains. Can creativity be outsourced in that same way, do you think? This gets philosophical because it then gets to the point of what do you define as creativity? Creativity, at the moment, the human race defines it as is an idea that has required conscious intent. It's required a human brain, which means that computers can mimic creative acts, but they can't do creative acts because there's no conscious intent. There's no understanding of the subjective um, value of something. So, so is that then creativity? But the idea of creativity in art has changed over the years, and I believe it will change. It used to be that the ancient Greeks didn't believe that painting was art. They didn't believe it was creative, they believed it was mimicry. And now when we talk about creativity and we talk about art, the first thing we think of is painting. Now it's amazing that that has changed completely 180 degrees. So maybe in the future, as we start to get computers that you'll have seen the, the Rembrandt that was done by a computer and then yes. there's, there's music and there's back up algorithms that can create new cantatas and things. And it's amazing that we can create these algorithms that, that computers can mimic art in such a way that the viewer cannot tell or the listener cannot tell. Then if we perceive it as art, is it art? If we perceive it as a creative product, is it a creative product? And this is a question that I think at the moment we say no, I would challenge that and say that in 30 years' time, we probably will redefine what we mean by creativity and what we mean by art. So I would say that computers aren't creative yet, but they will be. It's interesting you say that because, um, you know, even for this show, our intro music is generated by a computer program. You yeah. Know? So we uh, decided to go into a plugin and say, yes, this is, the, this is the type of music we'd like. This is how long we'd like it to run mm. for. And it spat out something which we thought, hey, that works as a great you know, podcast jingle, and, and off yeah. we go. Um, and as somebody myself who's a, a musician, um, was on one stage, um, you, know, you have this um, uh, internal battle between you know, what is music and what isn't music and what's generated. I used to be, no, you know, dance music wasn't, uh, that's not music, that's just generated by a computer. But yeah. now I'm like, actually, it sounds kind of cool and, and the stuff mm. that you can do. Well, Eno's latest album is an app. So Brian Eno brought this out and, uh, you know, I, I was one of the fools that spent £20 on it. <laughs> and it basically will create, it will generate music forever. As long as you leave it running, it's just algorithms that he has worked on and he has approved. 
and every single time you play it you get something unique but it's based on what he has approved now that is computer generated is the computer being creative i would say in that case actually no i'd say that the creativity came from eno crafting those algorithms because there was there was subjective judgment of the value of choice and that's i think what at the moment we believe creativity is and it's it's interesting that that on my phone that there is this app that is computer generated music but really it's the programmer who is the the creative genius there yeah that's an interesting point because just like the the next rembrandt that the the sino app there's that and it is a philosophical question about does it make you feel an emotion does it change your world in some way it doesn't in some ways it doesn't matter if a human if it started with a human mm. if it does make you feel something then it's it is art it is creativity in in the best sense so the the question with something like the eno app and and the reason why the next rembrandt isn't as interesting as there is an algorithm where that was painting new styles of painting i don't know if you've seen that one where it was it was kind of inventing whole new like uh, styles that hadn't yet been invented that becomes more interesting whereas the eno app it's that's great if what it's creating each time is it does hit you like music should otherwise it's it, the, all the interest in it and it's still interesting is in the technique itself rather than the the end product i guess and that's that becomes really interesting because you're right these these things they are they are generating work that we can define as creative work if it has that effect on you but it's it's along a path or it's within boundaries but this idea of of computers creating their own path of um creating a new style of art that to me i think is fascinating once we get to that because isn't that creativity because the thing that as as a former musician myself you know the hardest thing as a musician is finding your voice mm. if a computer is able to do that to create its own thing and find its voice that's what creative people and people who work in creative industries strive for years to do and most of them fail <laughs> so so that is what really really interests me well if you use the uh, the musician example i mean it has great parallels with ai right so as a musician you learn from your heroes and you start playing those tunes then you start mixing it up with everything else you just input that data and data until eventually yeah you do strike a chord it's like oh that sounds interesting oh that's mine and then you go yeah. off in your own path and there I've, I've heard the thing with being a musician if you if you emulate one artist now I, mean, I was a guitarist and as you know I was a big fan of um uh sort of BB King and Muddy Waters and mm-hmm. uh, and those guys and if I emulate one of those guitarists then I'm a plagiarist I'm a copyist if I take three of those guitarists and I merge them I'm influenced by all of them and I merge them then I'm seen as somebody with his own voice because I've merged three things together to create something new now it's it's this interesting thing you you'd actually think then if I've taken three people I'm I even more of a plagiarist that it doesn't work that way it, it it's this inverse proportion thing <laughs> the more people that you draw upon because at the beginning as a musician you copy 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 until you get good at stuff and then you copy someone else and as you bring that together you find your own voice i wish i had that insight uh, 10 15 years ago so i would be playing so much metallica all the time <laughs> you diverge a little bit more from that but you know that's your 20s right um so until the robot overlords come and start generating all this and um start doing our creative work for us what is it that um people 
who struggle to unlock that part of their brains can do and you know where do people need the most help when it comes to creativity you know what can we be doing today i think that a lot of people this this idea of the norm you know sort of being within a norm over time people's that norm gets smaller and smaller and smaller people's lives get smaller and smaller and smaller until we just they're in an old folks home as, as some as sort of bitter old racist <laughs> um but I think it's really important for people to constantly push their boundary and to constantly be doing stuff they've never done before, just at the edge of what they're comfortable with. And what that means is that over time, there's not that much distance between here and the big dirt nap at the end, <laughs> between that, uh, that narrow wooden box that you spend the rest of your uh, uh, molecular existence in. You have to make sure that you get bigger over time and that at the end of your life, you are the biggest and best you've ever been. I think that that's something that people need to do. And by constantly um, challenging that, that border that naturally will contract, then you'll become a bigger and better and more creative person because it's, it's the input process output. And the more experience you have, the more input you have, the more views you have, uh, the more understanding of different people you have. And that helps you solve problems. And maybe rather than being scared of the word creativity and putting your hand up and going, oh, no, I'm not creative, is actually forget the word creativity and just start looking at the fact that you're solving problems or you're generating ideas or you say it in some way that feels comfortable with you. Because the word creativity itself can, is poison to some people. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that. It's about um, not getting stuck in the loop. So it's really easy to, to just... Um, come up with the same answer to different questions or if you keep asking yourself the same question you're inevitably just going to come back with the same reply each time definition of madness right ask yourself <laughs> the same question same answer and expect something different yeah <laughs> well there's plenty of uh, the definition of madness in being creative as well I think but um, yeah so uh, there's that thing that Dave talked about which really chimed with us here when, when he spoke uh, recently at Edelman that um the non-conformist in in the in creativity, uh, it's a case of not doing the easy thing, or 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 sticking with the first idea that comes into your head, or or uh, just as much saying I'm not creative. It's it's about a mindset more than anything else. And just like we've already talked about, it's it's not uh, a technique or a skill. It's uh, it's all of the things, your entire experience, creatives don't turn creativity on and off. Like um, perhaps people that don't consider them as creatives think is how it works. It's it's a constant thing. So uh, then you're in a position when it's time to come up with an idea that you can just draw on all of that. Yeah, it's lovely. It's this non-obvious thing. There, there's a guitarist I was a big fan of in the 80s and 90s called Robert Cray. And he was interviewed on radio. I listened to this interview with him and they asked him, how do you do such amazing guitar solos? And he said, it's actually quite easy. He said, just take the first thing that comes into my head and don't play it. And, and it's, it's, it's actually a really good thing <laughs> to, to understand is that we fall into these ruts. And as soon as you find yourself in a rut, that's when you need to jolt yourself out of it. That's when you need to do something different because otherwise Man, what a dull life that is. You just become a repetitive robot. And the thing is, when you keep repeating stuff, there's a psychological thing that happens is that time goes faster 
because you're doing more in autopilot, you're doing less conscious stuff. Your life goes faster. And you know, the, the distance between here and the, <laughs> the end of your days, as I'm saying, it's not long. You don't want that to be a fast journey. <laughs> you want to enjoy it. And so you come up with this uh, idea. I often like to think of it as uh, the idea that might get you fired. Yeah. Um, as, as, as the one that you get most excited about. Um, and I'm looking at you, Paul. Like, If you come up with those ideas, how do you convince the client to buy into those ideas that might make them a little bit uncomfortable, you feel might be the right one, and you know it, it's, going to, it's going to win you that award? So firstly, that is just as much part of the job as coming up with the idea in the first place. Um, if it is strategically nails on, if you've answered the brief perfectly with this idea and it is a bit scary but it's getting people excited and the right kind of people excited and if the agency is right behind this and they really want to make it and then it makes the, the client actually it makes it very hard for them to say no to it because you've answered the brief exactly it's going to deliver on on their business objectives and there's lots of excitement around it and that's contagious if you've got really good client, they will also feel that immediately. But obviously, they have different priorities. They have different pressures on them. So, so sometimes we do need to to talk to them about why this is great and why it, the reason it's scary is because it's good. Um, and you know, talking about awards in that meeting never hurts much either, because <laughs> they're the ideas that win them. But the, I think you're you're absolutely right. There is we are. People think that all the thinking is done in this sort of meatball that we've got uh, teetering on top of our necks. And our brain, you know, is our, our nervous system is distributed. As a musician, my arm does part of the thinking because it just automatically knows where the notes are on the guitar. I don't have to consciously think my finger needs to go there. So, so part of the thinking is done in my arm. Isn't that amazing? Well, your biggest brain outside your head is your gut. Yep, absolutely. So you've got the equivalent of three rat brains down here in terms of the amount of neurons. And you feel the butterflies, you feel the uncomfortable, the nervousness down there, because actually that's that's where it's based. That's where that thinking is done. Uh, and what happens is that clients tend to feel this sort of nervousness. And clients very often don't say no because they mean no. They say no because they don't have enough information to say yes. It makes them nervous. And when it's a good idea if they don't understand why it's a good idea they haven't done the the research to to understand about that particular piece of technology and how people are engaging with it um that they don't understand maybe this particular part of their audience that well then be, rather than look stupid and say mm, i'll need to do a bit of research into that because that means work and it makes them look like a dumbass they stick their hand up and they go no no that's not the idea for us and then it's the job of the agency and it's the job of the, the creatives and everyone working on it to educate the client and take them on that journey. So it's actually easier if you take the client with you in the journey as much as possible so that it's not this massive surprise at the end. Here's the idea. Ba -ba! <laughs> and the client's, what the hell's yeah, happened absolutely. there? Where'd that come from? <laughs> So I've covered a lot of ground here on uh, what is a Friday afternoon we're recording. So, um, Dave, thank you so much for uh, coming in today. Very and, welcome. Uh, 
Paul taking some some time out of your your day to, to join us. Pleasure. And um, everyone for listening, um, please do subscribe to the Edelman UK uh, podcast. Share as much as you can. And uh, if you'd like to get in contact uh, for any reason, um, you can email us at sideload at edelman.com. And until next time, um, we'll say have a good day. Goodbye now.